Hey everyone, this is Kurt Franken with Leading Saints. And before we jump into this week's episode, I want to make sure we announce two important events. First one, on November 16th, 2019, we are having our annual Lead- Leading Saints Live event in uh, on the campus of uh, Solid Community College Miller Campus, which is in Sandy, Utah. It's on a Saturday, November 16th, starting about roughly about 8 o'clock in the morning until about 4.30. We're having five phenomenal speakers, including... Jody Moore, Dan Duckworth, Wendy Ulrich, Anthony Sweat, and myself. And we will uh, jump into, these are individuals who've been on the podcast and been very popular on the podcast. And so come listen to them live. And if you're not available to come, if you're not in Utah to available to attend in person, uh, you won't get all of the content, but you'll get most of it as we are going to stream it online so that you can access it. But you still need to register. So if you go to leadingsaints.org, right there on the homepage, you'll see an obvious link to click on and register for this event. We only have about 200 seats in this auditorium, and so it is most likely going to fill up. We're about halfway there. So jump in, grab your seat, or watch online. The second thing I need to announce is the 2020 Leading Saints Church History Tour, which begins on July 16th. It's a nine-day tour starting in Hilcomora or starting at the Hill Camorra, and then we're going all the way to Kansas City, Missouri, uh, where it will end. And uh, everything between there, at least a lot of the historical church sites will be be hitting. Everything from, just going down the list here, the Sacred Grove, the Susquehanna River site, John Johnson Farm, Kirtland Temple, Newell K. Whitney Store, Carthage Jail, Historic Nauvoo, Nauvoo Temple, of course, and man, Adam on Diamond, it goes on and on. You can see all the itinerary and the details and how to register at leadingsaints.org slash tour. Now, this is filling up. The seat is more, or the uh, bus is more than half full. So I think there's around 20 or less seats left. So if you are wanting to be a part of this nine-day adventure with me, my wife, and, and others in the Leading Saints community, go to leadingsaints.org slash tour. To register, it would be so cool to hang out with you for nine days, and we're going to talk leadership, we're going to emphasize different leadership aspects of, of church history throughout the tour, and it is going to be awesome. So, leadingsaints.org slash tour. Welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham. If you're new to Leading Saints, this is a podcast where we talk all things leadership in the context of being a Latter-day Saint. And so, whether you're a Latter-day Saint in an official calling, or a parent, or serve on a community council, whatever it is, this is a great place for you to to come and learn. Now, there's many individuals who don't serve in an official capacity of leadership, but still find value and never miss an episode. So all kinds come here and benefit from it. And we welcome you. I want to give a shout out to the Isom family. My cousin, Nikki, notified me that her in-laws listen to leading saints. And as a family, they uh, listen, obviously not like together in the same room, but uh, you know they all listen in, on their personal time and then come together and talk about the different topics and conversations that we have on Leading Saints. And I would love to hear if your family is always talking about the latest episode or listening together, or maybe you're a couple that always listens, I'd love to hear that. And uh, reach out to me at leadingsaints.org slash contact. Love to have you connect and I'll give you a shout out maybe in a future episode, but I I really do appreciate all the listeners out there. We're getting incredible downloads and uh, incredible growth, and the message is getting out there, and it really feels like we're we're making a difference, and that's all possible from the supporters out there, the core leaders, the monthly donors, subscribers, and if you're not a donor, you should become one, and uh, you can see all the information on how to do that at leadingsaints.org because this stuff doesn't just come out of nowhere. Anyways, this episode, you're going to love it. I promise you this... I, I sit there and make an inter- do these interviews from time to time, and I'm just thinking, I can't believe this is happening. My recorder better be working, and this is one of them, with author Barbara Morgan Gardner, who's actually also a religion professor at Brigham Young University, and she recently wrote a book published by Desert Book called The Priesthood Power of Women. And you can imagine, being a leader in the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, uh, this is a concept, a a topic that comes up from time to time that you really need to understand. And uh, as especially as we talk about who's presiding and what meeting, what do priesthood keys really mean, what authority do they really enforce and so forth. We we really delve into this, into this interview and you're going to love it and definitely check out her book. We can't cover everything in the book and that's why there's a book so you can go read it. But big shout out to Barbara Morgan Gardner for taking the time to 
to record this interview. You're going to love it. Please share it. I think it will be an easy one to share. But here is my interview with Barbara Morgan Gardner, author of The Priesthood Power of Women. Today, I have the opportunity to sit down with Barbara Morgan Gardner. How are you, Barbara? I'm doing fantastic. Awesome. Now, you... You recently wrote this fantastic book, The Priesthood Power of Women, which is published by Desert Book with the subtitle, In the Temple, Church, and Family. And this is the book that answers all our questions, right? (laughs) Uh, It doesn't answer all of them because I have many more to ask myself (laughs) and find, but it hopefully will help in some way. So where did the the inception of this idea come from to, to jump into this book project? I think from a number of different venues. Growing up, so I'm one of 13 kids. I have seven sisters and five brothers. And I'm very close to my brothers, especially. And I just remember them going to father and son's outing and and talking about how important the priesthood was and the priesthood restoration. And I remember thinking to myself, well, isn't it important to girls too? Yeah. Like, shouldn't we also? And then reading the scriptures, I remember wondering what missionary scriptures applied to me and which ones didn't and Sunday school and then seminary. And then as I started teaching, it became even more important because I knew that a lot of the teachers were teaching it as if they applied to everyone, but as women, we didn't really know what applied to us or yeah. not. And many women may have not thought that through, but that was always on my mind growing up. And then especially again on my mission. But most importantly, as I went to Boston as the Institute Director, and I had many women that were at Harvard and MIT and Wellesley and a number of other universities. And those questions became very serious. And I knew I was also talking to other adult women that were struggling with that idea. And I have just always felt that true doctrine understood changes attitude and behavior and recognize that if I understood the doctrine better, the attitude and behavior would probably change as well. But mm-hmm. we were clearly missing the doctrine. Yeah. So I wanted to get a little bit deeper in how that applied to women. And before we jump into sort of the principles of this, of the book, maybe give us some perspective on your career path. Like you mentioned, sure. you've been in the CES program and, and now you're at BYU, but how would you explain that? I started very young with the paper out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Here we go. <laughs> Just kidding. I mean, I did, but... <laughs> I, after I served my mission, I started working for the church educational system in seminary. I, I always wanted, I wasn't sure if I wanted to teach seminary or go to law school. And so those were kind of my, those are my two big areas. But I was told that as a woman, you couldn't teach full-time seminary. Hmm. So I started going Which to Which was true route. at one point, right? Or It wasn't true growing at what, as it got to my age, uh-huh. but it was still the culture that some people didn't know oh, the okay. difference, which is part of this whole study. Right. So I kind of gave up on that. And then after my mission, the seminary the hiring group came and said, actually, you you can teach what's kind of the issue. Anyway, there's more to that. But so I taught seminary um, for a few years, then went back to the church office building or went to the church office building. I did evaluations of seminary institute teachers and worked with church schools internationally, finished my master's degree and started teaching um, seminary and an institute. And then had a received my PhD in instructional psychology, continued to work in the church office building. Then I went to BYU and taught for a couple of years, went back to Institute. And then after, again, two more years, my PhD was done. They hired me full-time at BYU. Wow. So, and you're in the religion department. Is that how you... Yeah. Yep. Uh, so okay. I'm in the church history and doctrine department of the religious oh, education. Gotcha. And uh, so what type of cl- courses are you teaching most typically? Yeah. So I teach eternal family, living prophets, and church history and doctrine, wow. doctrine and covenants, and then the restoration classes. Nice. And I love the various anecdotes you, you uh, reference in the book about some of these questions you pose to your educated BYU students that yes. maybe opened your eyes to some things, but my students have been guinea pigs for me, whether they whether I mean them to be or not, mm-hmm. and they they're very usually open and raw, and you can see a lot just by asking them questions, and they ask a lot of questions. But yeah, I use my students not intentionally ever to write a book, but yeah. just to learn to see what what they need help with and how yeah. they can better. And I think it's a good like a sample size of generally what's going on in the church in general, as far sure. as the knowledge. You know, if they don't know. Their parents probably don't know either, right? Yeah, especially when you have, in most of the classes I teach, a lot of return missionaries. Yeah. So you kind of get an idea of what they're being taught on their missions yeah. as well as studying. So beginning this project, like, was there one specific principle you wanted to be sure to hit clearly or, or make sure that you cover in this book or a chapter you were really excited to, to jump into? Yeah, I think, I think a part of my study, I started realizing that the area of greatest confusion was that members of the church and leaders of the church did not separate the hierarchical structure of the church and the priesthood and the patriarchal structure. And I realized that a lot of confusion was coming because of the that topic. And if I could help men and women alike, especially leaders, to recognize that 
we could teach this a lot better. That's where I wanted to go. Yeah. And also to help women specifically understand that the prophet lately in the last 10 years has been asking us to step up to the plate a little bit more. And there are a lot of women who aren't studying the priesthood because they feel that they don't have a problem with it. Hmm. Meaning there are those who have a problem with women not receiving the priesthood and they don't. And so there's no reason to study it if they don't have a problem. But I recognized very early on that just because I don't have a problem with chocolate doesn't mean I don't want to learn more about it, right? <laughs> right so right, yeah. the more I learn about the priesthood, the more women learn about the priesthood, the more effective they'll be. Yeah. And, and I, I've sort of witnessed that dynamic even within my own family where, you know, some of my female family members, you know, this concept of priesthood and, you know, a patriarchal approach to church doesn't really bother them. Others, you know, they feel, you know, minimized by it a little bit and they're not sure how to reconcile. Not that it's led them to a faith crisis per se, yeah. but but it's something they, they wrestle with. And so there's sort of both, have you noticed that there's sort of some oh, yeah. that, that are really concerned or, I mean, I don't want to go too extreme, but some that really think about it. Others, they think, oh, whatever. Yeah. And frankly, it sounds a little bit funny to say this, but I started getting more concerned about the women who didn't think they needed to learn anything yeah, right, yeah. than the women who were frustrated right, with right. the situation. And I started realizing we're, we're, the ones who are not interested in learning are the ones that kind of have the all is well in Zion philosophy and Satan... This is a little bit strong, but Satan uses that tactic with them just sure. like he uses other tactics with other people. Right. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great point. So as I go through, and this is a fantastic book. I mean, the the chapters, each chapter sort of focuses on a different angle that it really, I sit there th thinking, wow, this is so insightful. And, you know, as a 37-year-old man who's been a bishop and had held the priesthood, you know, for most of my life, whatever it is, I'm thinking, how come I didn't know this? Do you feel like, and this is my question is that, Sometimes I wonder if we were to get in a time machine and take this back to David O. McKay, this book, I mean, would he know these things or is this more of like some more further revelation and understanding that we've gained just in modern times as more people ask these questions? Yes and no, depending on the topic that you're going to ask David okay, O. McKay. Okay. <laughs> so did he know about women, especially in regards to the temple? Yes. And I don't want, I mean, right, I have, we I've can't never read his David mind. Yeah, right, right. But some of the topics that we are hearing now, especially with women having priesthood authority, is more in the church, is something you hear about more from President Oaks and President Nelson, however, and President Ballard. However, Joseph F. Smith does have quotes on that, and James E. Talmadge does, and Joseph Smith does. So I think we have some here and there, but they're, they're more sporadic. Yeah. Lately, it's been very focused, and we have a number of them coming together at one time yeah. with the emphasis. So yeah. I think it's emphasized more. But do I think David O. McKay knew that? Yes. But I also think he had to be cautious with the environment at the time. Mm -hmm. I don't know why exactly he had to be cautious, but I, I, I guess I just feel deep down that he did the right thing yeah. at the right time. For yeah. And, and I don't mean that to sound like a gotcha question by any no, means. No, I get it. But what I, sometimes I think as society progress and these questions come to the surface, which are valid questions yeah. as far as how the women relate to the priesthood, sometimes it can feel like, well, now are we just sort of like shoehorning this doctrine into the the current society? Like, well, actually, women have sort of always had power and, and, and authority and, and whatnot, in which I, I believe in. But I just wonder if, the, if uh, leaders are having people come to them and ask sort of like with a skeptical eye, like, oh, so now it all fits together. Where where was this in the 80s and the 70s? You know, that sort of thing. So Yeah. And I, I will say that a lot of the research that I did came from prophets, talks, and apostles yeah. from the 70s Yeah, I was surprised some of these names that you yeah. were referencing. I tried yeah. to keep it as close as possible to the date that we're in. So trying to use those who are alive. Mm -hmm. But Bruce R. McConkie, Joseph F. Smith, some of yeah. those, they clearly were teaching this. It's just a little bit more sporadic. Yeah. And probably even more importantly, the early talks of Joseph Smith and Women of the Covenant. There's a book called Women of the Covenant that's hmm. fantastic and just talking about the history of the church. And I think when you kind of piece it together, you start realizing, ah, yeah, th this has always been known. It's just been yeah. taught differently. Yeah. Now, I, I appreciate the discussion because, and, and I think part of it is that now data and indexes and, you know, conference talks are just more easily searchable. And we can find some of these things where maybe in the 70s and 80s, <laughs> you had your ensign. Yeah, And absolutely. maybe you could go to the BYU library and jump in if you wanted, but it's a little bit more assess accessible now, right? Yeah. And even, honestly, even when I have looked, <laughs> I have looked at a few talks when I've been asked to do firesides and things, and I'll go back and just kind of put in some search, key searches, key, keyword searches. And it's surprising to me how many times over the years other people have written on this topic that are hmm. not necessarily leaders. Not They haven't separated to hierarchical and patriarchal and things like that, but yeah. they have some general teachings that seem so progressive, but they were just, they really were common knowledge to, to those people as well. Mm -hmm. 
I think that one of the things that's been fascinating to me is President Nelson asked four years ago in his plea to, plea to my sister's talk when he was first called as the president of the Quorum of the Twelve for sisters to be studying and knowing the doctrine. And sisters have been asking, have been asked to do that for a number of years now. And I really feel like this may be a little extreme. I think the the Lord and the prophets and the brethren are waiting for the sisters to figure it out too, yeah. as if we need to be the ones teaching and they're going to continue to guide and they're going to continue to give permission and plead. But I think that for some reason, the sisters really need to be figuring it out. They want them to figure it out. Yeah. And I think it's natural that you sort of go to general conference. We want to be spoon fed these, yeah. these precious doctrines where they put them out there and there's doctrines there, but the the benefit in our engagement with the, the doctrine comes as we engage with it, right? As we, Absolutely. As we dig ourselves and find these answers and, and rely on our own personal connection with the revelation, right? Right. And and on that same note, that although a lot of times when I, when I was writing, I would just say, oh my gosh, I'm writing something that is so obvious, but I just figured that out because of my experience in the temple today. Somehow there's just a nuance and just a little yeah. shift in the way I've been thinking that makes everything clear where before I thought it was clear, but I missed an integral part. And yeah. then all of a sudden I think, oh, I can explain it so much better having gone to the temple or having read my scriptures. And somehow the Lord just kind of tweaks things a little bit. Yeah. yeah I appreciate that. Experience. Yeah. Because sometimes I'll shift into a perspective like, how did I miss this before? But yeah. I, I really did. And now the doctrine is so much enriching because of it. So yeah, it's a fun process. Yeah. So, all right. I appreciate that uh, sort of a wormhole we went down, but those are fun. So let's jump into this. As far as in chapter one, you talk about the, the patriarchal and Hierarchical. Hierarchical. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hard word. <laughs> right. So, and this was sort of just one area where I'm just like, wow, like, where has this been all my life? Like this concept. So maybe just give us a, a synopsis of, of what that is and, and what we need to understand about that. Yeah. And for me, it was a complete eye opener, which again, this is why I felt like I almost had a responsibility to help people because in talking with people, I realized that that was confusing to a lot of people. So hierarchical, well, I'll start with patriarchal. Patriarchal structure of the priesthood is what was used in the times of Adam and Eve all the way through the Old Testament, which is one of the reasons why we see uh, the temple is very similar to the Old Testament. Now you see this, this priesthood and I love, President Benson has a great talk and he talks about the word patriarchal priesthood. And he says that a better term for patriarchal is familial priesthood. So it's a husband and wife together with their family leading in righteousness and temple covenants and ordinances in order to bring someone to exaltation. Wow. We continue that structure of the priesthood through the Old Testament. Then you get to Moses and Moses during that time period because of, because of the golden calf and everything else, that highest structure of the priesthood, which is the patriarchal structure is taken away. And so we have this period of time. We, we still have the priesthood, but we don't have the patriarchal priesthood anymore. But then when you get to Jesus Christ, because you see that um, there is a different family structure, the church, the, the family structure is no longer in existence as it was in the Old Testament times with Abraham and Sarah and Adam and Eve. Elder McConkie teaches that we had to have a new structure, a new priesthood structure. And so he says that Christ, therefore, started what is known as the hierarchical priesthood structure, where it's prophet, first presidency, quorum of the twelve apostles, and continues on in that structure. So when Joseph Smith, this is a really quick summary. So when Joseph Smith comes around uh-huh. <laughs> in the early 1800s, he is first given the hierarchical structure of the priesthood. He's, he's asked to call the first presidency. And then you have section 18 where he's asked to find the quorum of the 12 and you see this hierarchical structure coming through. But then as he's starting to continue on with the church, you see that, well, section two of the doctrine and covenants, the Lord has clearly told him that he is going to be looking at and being, he's going to receive the patriarchal structure. He doesn't say that in section two, but when you start studying it, Hmm. you realize that he's talking about the hearts of the fathers and the children. And you start recognizing that that's a patriarchal structure priesthood, just like during the time of the Old Testament. And so Joseph Smith is receiving revelation both on hierarchical, but he's also receiving a patriarchal structure. In the Doctrine and Covenants, you see that he's receiving revelation on both sides. So now you see in the Relief Society is coming along and that fits somewhat of the hierarchical structure. But the reality is he's trying to prepare women to receive their endowments and be able to receive power and authority. And he uses those words with women specifically to the Relief Society. Uh-huh. So now in the restoration of the gospel, although we look at the church and we say, this is a hierarchical structure. If you look at the temple, it's a patriarchal structure. So it's a perfect molding of both. Often, though, we don't talk about the patriarchal structure in the church, number one, because we don't understand it very well. But I say number two is because the temple for a lot of people is off limits because they don't know what they can and can't say, Mm -hmm. haven't really thought about it. So, And it's the more sacred part. So we talk openly about hierarchical, not using that term. And we talk quietly within the temple and our families in a very quiet hushed tone about the patriarchal, which is, according to Dallard Ballard, the structure that's going to continue in the eternities. Yeah. Wow. And, And just having that dichotomy and then approaching even Doctrine and Covenants, knowing that as the restoration goes forward, like 
there's these two priesthoods that are are in play here. It's not just one because we, we sort of simplify the doctrine to just to make it simple and say, well, it's just this priesthood is priesthood, right? Right, and, right. And men have it. Yeah, and that's one of the that's another big lesson I learned is you know priesthood is God's power, period. And the priesthood that God has given to mankind on the earth is a, is is a a part of a greater priesthood. Any power from God is priesthood power. That's the definition. So we talk about the as I talk about in the book, we talk about this this smaller priesthood as if it was the priesthood, but it is a very minor part of God's power that yeah. He has delegated to mankind on the earth. I yeah. say mankind because obviously this book we're talking about both men and women having that priesthood power. Yeah, and, and just that idea it really expands expands the priesthood and, and the understanding of the priesthood because it's, okay. it can be so easy to focus on the hierarchical priesthood that oh the bishop's the bishop and you know I've gotten through my my season of being the bishop and and so I had that authority but now I don't but at home and I'm here like that authority that this power is constantly present and, and constantly something I'm in, I'm engaging with and that right. that's inspiring yeah and and again I I think the brethren have done a great job in talking about that priesthood. There's a good reason why we're talking about what I'm saying, that priesthood. I'm going to talk about this. So I'll go back a little bit. I, yeah. Elder Elder Rendland in his book, and I, this was another one of those, just he talks about the big earth priesthood and the little earth priesthood in his book. And yeah. I use that and in mine Mel- as well. Melchizedek priesthood. Yeah, the Melchizedek the priesthood. Melchizedek. So it was, it was Elder and Sister Rendland who yeah, wrote yeah. that book. But that concept had already come very clear to me before he had said that. And when he said it, I just thought, thank you. I mean, once again, a confirmation of the things that I was already learning. But he explained it in such a great way. The big earth and the little earth, the big earth is this globe that we have, and the little earth is the dirt. And so the brethren are often talking about, the the big B brethren, and also we as members of church often talk about the little dirt priesthood as if it was everything. But for good reason. We're talking Mm -hmm. about the importance of key holders. And we're talking about the authority and we're talking about doing your home teaching and being a good bishop. And so that is a major focus. And it's something that we can talk about outside. But when you're talking about the patriarchal priesthood and the order of the priesthood, you're talking about temple. And there is a bigger caution about talking about that. So mm-hmm. there would be a reason we wouldn't know as much about one as we would about the other. Yeah. Although those doors have been opened a lot more lately, especially with Elder Bednar's recent talk on the temple. Yeah. Again, he's not saying anything new, but he's reiterating what other prophets have said before. But somehow we have a lull in that recognition. Sometimes. Yeah, it's also helpful. It's always helpful every few decades or maybe yeah. more when the apostle says, hey, we can talk about these things a little bit more. It's getting a little bit too hush hush because it's important. And I completely agree that we should be talking about it more. Yeah. But again, people have a hard time talking about things they don't know a lot about which is the reason to study it more because if especially with the temple if you feel like you're going overboard or talking more than you should you feel like you're doing something wrong yeah but if we knew what we could talk about which really just comes again from studying and knowing what the prophets say then then we the sky's the limit for the yeah. most part yeah and especially as you go through the book of Moses you think I, does Moses know he's he's writing too much outside the <laughs> temple about the temple exactly <laughs> so, yep and Jacob and yeah well for the sake of I mean, I might as well have you just read word for word your chapter one, but uh, we won't do that. <laughs> okay. uh, obviously, you've already done that in the audiobook. So, uh, but even though chapter one itself, this would is worth the price of the book and to go to go check it out or sit down, find a place to sit down in a desert book and, and read it right there because it's just so helpful to see that dichotomy and and then see the gospel through that through that perspective. So, I want to jump into keys, priesthood keys, because I, I was called as a, as a wise experienced bishop at the age of 28. I had a degree in marketing, and so I knew everything. I was completely prepared Brilliant, for this, yeah. right? <laughs> so, and I was obviously given keys, and I, I'd been an elders quorum president before, and obviously deacons and teachers uh, quorum president. And I think like this concept of priesthood keys, we sort of throw it around like we know what we're talking about, but yeah. I will be the first to admit, I don't really know what I'm talking about when I say priesthood keys. I'm learning more about it and understanding it, but especially in an elders quorum where you think, what are the elders quorum keys for? And we sort of default to, well, that just means he's the guy in charge. So if there's a decision to be made, he gets the last, last say in, in the decision. But yeah. th- it is so much more. So how would you begin the under, helping us understand what priesthood keys are? Yeah. So I would I would back up a little bit further Let's than that, it. if that's okay. And I would, <laughs> I, I say this in the book as well, I, there are at least 40 different types of keys that are mentioned in the scriptures. And we often talk as if there's one and we talk about the key and we don't use this terminology, but we say priesthood keys. A better terminology for that type of key would be the keys of presiding. But you also have keys of the apostleship or keys of being an apostle, which no bishop, stake president, elders, quorum president, deacon, or anyone else on the face of the earth holds except for 15 men on the earth. Mm -hmm. 
And I think sometimes people just think if you have priesthood keys, then you've got it. But that is not the case. You have very specific keys for a very specific purpose. And if we're talking specifically about keys of presiding, we are then talking about a person who is who has been given those keys, who has been given, in a sense, authority to act in the name of God in behalf of people under his stewardship. Mm-hmm. So he can turn those keys in their behalf. He can promise blessings. He can he can use those keys to to do those things as a presiding official in the church, which I think most people recognize it as that. But I'll also say that I think that some men, and I don't, I'm not saying that I understand this completely either, but I think some people, in this case, men hold those keys and don't recognize the power that they have with those keys, mm-hmm. that they really can bless their wards. They really can make promises in the name of God because they are the key holder, where their counselor, first counselor could not be making that promise. Mm. And frankly, the elders quorum president could not be making that promise to the ward, but they could make that promise to their elders quorum, right? Yeah. So the main thing, as I would just say, is the person who is a, a key holder, a presiding key holder, has the right and the responsibility to be blessing and acting in the name of Jesus Christ in behalf of those people he has stewardship over. Yeah, which would be a, a bishop or be the people in his ward and so forth, right? Right. And yeah. sometimes we just say, that, well, he's in charge. And I would say, yeah, he's in charge. But what that really means is he is given the responsibility to bless and to be serving and to be leading the way Christ would if he were the person in that position at that time. Yeah, I, I love how you use those, those words. And I'm sure they're not your words. I mean, you're not making this I'm up as you sure that go. I'm pretty came from Ballard. <laughs> right, right. So because I remember on my mission, President Grow, my mission president, many times at the end of zone conferences, he would take a moment and say, according to my keys, I bless you yeah. and give us a blessing, sort of a group blessing. And it was such a sweet moment. You know, we felt so connected to him. And and I think even I've heard some apostles do use similar language yeah. or, you know, sort of give this, I bless you that, you know, in a, in a formal meeting setting. And I remember many times as a bishop, just feeling this urgency to, to make promises to people. Yeah. And, and I, maybe in the moment I didn't realize I was using my keys, but I had every permission and every level of authority to make those promises to that individual, even when they seemed like it, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, what are you saying? Stop right now before you say too much. But that is the, the authority to bless absolutely. those that we preside over. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, yes. that's powerful. So tell us the story. That, so how would you define this? And maybe I'm, I'm skipping back here, but the story you told about in you asked your, your students, who here holds keys? Oh, yeah. And I've done this a number of times, so I can't always remember exactly what to put in the book. But uh-huh. I have asked, in this case, I think I just asked who in here holds priesthood keys. And I actually had them write it just down on a piece of paper because I really wanted to know if they got it. And I had every answer from everyone in this class, all the men in this class, all the men who have served missions, everyone in here. And this is a little bit after President President Oaks' talk on authority. So I had some that said every person who has a calling. I had some that said no one. And then, of course, I have, you know, I have some of them just gave me numbers. They'd, I'm sure they were looking around and counting the guys or the girls. And uh-huh. Seven, two, <laughs> six. <I'm> like, <laughs> yeah. I honestly, in that one class, I must have had 50, at least 50, probably 60 students, the majority of which were returned missionaries. And there was not a single answer that was exactly the same. Like, yeah. And they all told me that they all knew what priesthood keys were. So it was really obvious, really fast that they didn't. Yeah. And then, of course, the funny part is I go back to one of my mentors who I love dearly, Brother Cowan. He's a fantastic colleague of mine who was a, a major mentor. And I went back and told him how funny that was. And then he said, well, Barb, it depends on what kind of keys you're talking about. And then I was like, are, are you kidding me? Here I yeah. thought that I was, I mean, I knew I was stupid, but I didn't realize I was that yeah. off, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then he started talking to me about different kinds of priesthood keys and and kind of gave me a little jive to yeah. start studying a little bit more. So, And that leads into the discussion of these 40 different types of right. keys that are referenced in the scripture. So if we see the word key in the scriptures, even if it is in the same verse as priesthood, doesn't necessarily mean we're talking about keys of to preside or... Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you're going to section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, you have a section on temples, and then it talks about the key of knowledge within the Melchizedek priesthood. But then President Nelson says, all women of the church are able to receive the key of knowledge. Mm. And so all of a sudden you recognize that there's something wrong because if women can't hold presiding keys, but yet they're holding the key of knowledge, there are different kinds of keys. Yeah. And so then it starts making you think about which keys are we referring to? And, and the reality is when you start looking and be carefully at the nuances and the different sections and who the Lord is speaking to and what situation, you can figure it out. But it, it takes the effort of going through each one and saying, I culturally and traditionally, we talk about it in this way, but what are the scriptures really saying? And what are the prophets I like to triangulate. So what do the scriptures say? What does the prophet say? What does the spirit say? Right. And when I see the prophets and the scriptures and the spirit all saying the same thing, I recognize that it's probably more of a tradition than it is actually true doctrine. Yeah. And and I love that concept because 
with a lot of these things, we want to nail it down to an answer, right? Yeah. But sometimes you get to a point in your study and you think, okay, I think I'm going to interpret it this way. I'm yeah. not going to you know, project that on others or they're right. wrong if they think differently, but this feels good to me right now and, and move forward with that knowledge until maybe more is revealed, right? Yeah. And my philosophy is basically I'll keep that to myself. If I don't have right. a triangulated answer, then I'm probably not going to be talking about it, writing it in a book, but I'll keep letting it percolate. And yeah. my experience has been that most of the time there is an answer. It just takes a little bit more digging yeah. and it's not meant to be hidden. It's just, I just hadn't thought about it that way. Right. And it becomes really obvious after a while. Yeah. So I want to spend some more time just in this concept of presiding uh, or the keys to to preside. Yeah. So how does that relate to, uh, when, you, when we talk about the keys to preside, we're talking in the hierarchy. I can't say this word. In the, you can just say the eight. The hierarchy. The, or administrative. The, the administrative. Well. Thank you. Yes, sir. Sure. The administrative side of the priesthood, right? Or does that does that also play a role in the patriarchal or familial priesthood? Uh, both. I just have to say something really quickly. Okay, you're good. I had it spelled wrong in the book until like the the week before it was published. Oh, really? Somebody brought it to my attention <laughs> that I had missed an IE. Oh, nice. So nice. I, yeah, I totally get that. It's hard <laughs> to spell, hard to say. I had it hierarchical instead of hierarchical. Oh, nice. So, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit confusing to people because we talk about, especially in the family proclamation, that men are to preside in the family. And so we automatically say, okay, presiding means presiding. And so then we use the church's structure and more more significantly, we use the world structure. And presiding for a lot of people, especially for women and perhaps women that are really interested in this topic, presiding has some negative connotations uh, for good reason. But specifically, when you're talking about the patriarchal structure of the priesthood, you're talking about, so this is the family. If you're talking about patriarchal, I'm just going to say patriarchal or family. It's given to men that they have the role of presiding. So when you again, you look at the, what the brethren are teaching about presiding and what that means in the family, they flat out say on many occasions that presiding in the family is different than presiding in the church. Mm, and so that helpful. makes you think, okay, so then what is the difference? And you start studying a little bit more and you could start looking at what does the handbook of construction say, the person who is holding keys and presiding in the church? Uh, it says quite a bit. And then you say, okay, so that person has authority in this way and he has the final decision. And you kind of, kind of start looking at that and you say, okay, so what have the brethren said about what it means to preside in the family? And number one, you don't see anything about keys and presiding in the family. Keys and presiding belong in the church structure, not in the family structure. Gotcha. So when you look more into it, you say, you say, okay, so how are they defining presiding? And what you see is what I talked about earlier, not a lot different. It's talking about being humble. It's talk about, it talks about being a servant. It talks about trying to unify families. But it also talks about for presiding specifically, the one who presides is the one who will be performing priesthood ordinances in the family. But it also talks about... When you're talking about presiding, you're not saying there's a president and a vice president or a president and a counselor. You're talking about a husband and wife who are equally yoked and who should be working on counseling and making decisions together. And if a man decides that because he's presiding, he is ruling over his wife, amen to the priesthood and the authority thereof. That would not be the case in the church structure. In the church structure, that would be appropriate depending on the situation, but completely not appropriate in the family, yeah. which again is a, is a huge eye opener to a lot of very strong, active members of the family who think the man presides, and yeah. so therefore they're in charge. Yeah. They're not. So a bishop could say something in a ward council like, as the bishop, I feel like we need to do this, and, and I'm, I'm going to take the steps forward to do that. Yeah. That would be appropriate. Absolutely. At home, he goes home, as the father, I feel like we need to do this, and in fact, we are going to do that. Not appropriate, right? Not it's appropriate more with, with counsel with, with the wife and things. So that's that's yeah. so helpful. Uh, let me make sure I don't miss anything. If that. he was over, if he didn't have a wife and he had children, it would be absolutely, right. he could do that as a father. Right. And just as the wife could also do that as a mother. But together as a couple, he should never, as President Packer says, use priesthood rank over his wife because right. that is not appropriate. Yeah. And I even love the clarification. I'm, I'm sure it's been given before, but President Nelson said in this past conference that if the husband passes away or is no longer in the home, the wife is the one who presides and right. that it doesn't go to the uh, deacon in the, in the family. Right. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. So uh, going back to you, talk about this. I'm, I'm curious about the connection between the apostolic keys and the keys of presidency, because the way I've always seen it is that there's this big pie of of priesthood keys and President Nelson owns that pie. And then obviously, you know, the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency have a, have a access to that under his direction. Right. And then they've taken that pie and sp split it up in slices and handed it out to stake presidents all over the world. And that stake president takes that piece of pie. And slices it up to and gives to the bishops in his area. Right. Is I know it's like that's like a horrible analogy no, that's for gospel. Fantastic. But is that totally. is that am I on the right track with that? If you're talking about keys of presiding. Okay, pre keys of presiding, which but that's not all the keys that the apostles have. Right? Okay. That's helpful. 
So my, I guess, which leads to my next question is oftentimes I know my brother who's a stake president sort of wrestles with this sometimes, you know, obviously a stake president doesn't want to step on the, the toes of the bishop, you know, you have keys and we want to give you autonomy to carry those out and see fit. But nonetheless, they're his keys, right? That he's sort of... Well, they're Christ keys. Or, or Christ I mean, keys, I don't right, want right. to be obnoxious, but there is a differentiation <laughs> no, no. here too. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but he's sort of the... He's presiding over those keys, which he has given to the bishops to preside in, in his area. So for instance, if he shows up to a baptism and that bishop's there, he is still presiding and presiding in that meeting, even though the bishop is there because he's a stake president, right? That's, that's correct. Right. Yes. And that's all in the, the keys of presiding. So It's the hierarchical structure. Right. So any, any, I mean, I know I'm saying the obvious here, but anytime there is somebody in a hierarchical structure who is more senior and holding those keys, and they are always going to be presiding at that meeting. Right, right. And so, but you're, you're also saying that the, the, the court of the 12 apostles in the first presidency, they have the, the keys of presiding. I mean, they own those keys for now, Absolutely. right? Yeah. But they also have an additional set of keys, the apostolic keys. That's right. right. Yeah. So they would have the, they would have the keys of sealing. So, so you have to back this up a little bit in church history as well. So when Peter, James, and John come to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, 1829, they are giving them the keys, right? And those keys that are given are presiding keys at that time. Okay. When Joseph Smith then with Oliver Cowdery are in in the Kirtland Temple, they receive more keys and those become the apostolic keys. So the keys that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery are receiving at that point are the keys of sealing, the keys of the kingdom, the keys of the gathering of Israel. Those keys are given only to apostles and first presidency. Those are not given, those are not passed down to anyone else, which is mm-hmm. why you have a sealer. The sealer doesn't get his permission to seal families, couples in the temple through the temple president. The temple president doesn't have those keys. He receives the authority to use and to seal couples together from a member of the first presidency and quorum of the 12. So keys of presiding, yeah, you'll go from first presidency, quorum of the 12, and then to the stake president and the stake president to the bishop. But when you have, when you're talking about temple sealing keys or any type of keys dealing with those that the Quorum of the Twelve only hold, the permission is given only from the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve. Okay. There's no middleman. So the, the ordinance of a sealing is being done under apostolic keys yes. then, not keys of presiding. Right, exactly. Right. Yep. And those, so do temple presidents hold keys? Temple presidents do hold okay. keys, but the keys that That's they hold are to make sure that the ordinances are done correctly. They're not sealing keys that promises the sealing for eternity. Ah, this Different is so keys. Okay. Isn't it fun? Yeah, it's great. So, <laughs> so then the temple president keys are a keys of presiding right. over that over that temple. That's exactly right. Okay. Just like the Quorum of the Seventy, people get confused with this as well. So the presidency of the Seventy hold keys, but they don't hold presiding keys over the stake president and over the bishop. They hold presiding keys only over the Seventy that they are supposed to be over. But there's that a lot of people think that the person that's over the state president has keys and that's the 70. It's not. Right. It's actually the apostle. Right. So the 70 only has keys over the 70. Right. It's kind of an interesting. Yeah. And they're, and when they could do state conferences or set apart a state president, they're sort of borrowing those keys exactly on right. assignment. Yeah. Uh, but it's not because they hold keys. Right. right? Yeah. So about mission presidents, are those apostolic keys? Those or are keys of presiding again. Keys of presiding. presiding over the missionaries. Right? And that the missionaries comes, in their area and also those who are not members of the church under their authority. Which is attached to the keys of gathering of Israel, right? Right. Yeah. Attached to it, but they don't hold those keys of the gathering of Israel. Okay. They're still holding presiding keys. Okay. The only ones who have those keys that are coming from the Kirtland Temple are First Presidency Quorum of the Twelve. Ah. That's why if you look at the church handbook of instruction, it'll say certain keys are delegated. Those keys are presidency keys. Okay. And those are, so the, the keys of gathering Israel are considered part of the apostolic keys. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then, so as far as the restoration of the, of the keys of presiding, where, who did that come from or where, where did that? The keys of presiding? Yes. That's Peter, James, and John given okay. to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. When they restored the Melchizedek priesthood. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Right, yeah, clears mud here. This is great. No, I'm just this, this is really helpful. <laughs> well, and it's an interesting really topic helpful. too, because it says in section two that those keys will be revealed. That's that's a topic that I, something that I've studied a lot. Were the keys by basically Elijah, we'll just go with that one. Were they yeah. just revealed to them or were they restored to them? I don't have a good answer for that because the prof, the nuances that are used yeah. when people talk about it are not clear enough. So yeah. I still have some questions in that that I haven't yeah. answered yet. And I think this exercise just really shows how different keys can be from, you know, the word key. It just doesn't mean the same thing, right? Right. I mean, you yeah. take the key of the ministering of angels Every, all the time you're told. I mean, since I was a child, I remember yeah. the deacons have the key of the ministering of angels and, and deacons, you need to know how wonderful it is that you have the key of the ministering of angels, which is fantastic. But then you start think, thinking, okay, but I thought only the deacons quorum president held keys. 
And right. you realize, no, these are general priesthood keys for anyone who was ordained to a priesthood office. So they're not presiding keys. These are general priesthood keys. There's a differentiation even within priesthood keys of what they hold. Yeah. And then, of course, the key holder is one who opens the door for everyone else. Yeah. So that everyone's receiving the blessings and promises regarding that yeah. key. Yeah. I love that. There's this idea of when that priest kneels down and blesses sacrament. I mean, he is, he is unlocking a door yeah. to the ministering of angels for the entire world. Exactly. It's not like they get to go hang out with angels because they're, right. they're priests or whatever. Right. But it's taught that way a lot. I mean, yeah, I remember is. as a it beehive is. thinking, oh, that's so cool. That the deacons get this. But nobody ever, nobody ever told me I got it too until yeah. I started studying it on my own and looking at Elder Ballard and Elder Oaks and saying, oh, wow, wait yeah. a second. They did say this. I just have never been taught this anywhere else except for a general conference, yeah. which I probably so That's a perfect segue into the uh, the general, the keys of, of general priesthood, which yeah. would be part of this, the keys of ministering of angels. Where, where else do we see, or how would you first introduce this concept of the keys of, of general priesthood? It depends on how I'm teaching it. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> if I were just talking to students or people that I know and love, I would kind of do what we already said. There are different kinds of priesthood keys. Okay. There are apostolic keys. I usually break it down into three different kinds, apostolic keys, presiding keys, and general priesthood keys. Yeah, so there's three general areas. Yeah, I would that say three. Okay. I mean, I've tried to break it down to simplify four, it. But to for, simplify, yeah, I do three. Yeah. So we already talked about the first two. The second one, or the third one would be the general, I call them general priesthood keys, the keys of the ministering of angels. Or in other words, it's not a presiding key, and it's not just one that the apostles hold. But any person who is ordained to a priesthood office receives those keys. But then also the, the keys of the mysteries of God are general keys, regardless of ordination to a priesthood office. Any member of the church who is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping member can have those keys because that's a promise that comes to section 84, which is a temple section. Yeah. Which is one of the sections that President Nelson asked all the sisters to memorize. Used to always be a section only for men, but uh -huh. President Nelson, in the last two conference talks that he has talked about women understanding the priesthood, he has asked specifically for the women to understand section 84 because it applies to them, yeah. which is groundbreaking, frankly. Yeah, that's powerful for sure. All right. So we spent a good 40 minutes here on the priesthood and these, you know, the patriarchal hierarchical priesthoods and then the keys. And this book's about women and, the, and priesthood, <laughs> yeah, right? But I yeah. feel like that's such a foundation. And one, I wanted to have a good discussion about keys, but also once we understand these different intricacies of, of this term keys, key that we use in, in the church, then we can then understand, okay, how do, how do women fit into all this, right? And yeah. so what should we understand as far as authority? I, again, the whole book talks about it, but yeah. where, where do women start to plug into this, this, these ideas? I mean, if you're talking about keys, yeah. then we'll just start there. The keys that women have are going to be focused in the temple. And frankly, I only say that it's so hard to explain this without, I mean, you have to really think of the nuance. Right. But you're talking about like the key of wisdom, the key of knowledge that specifically talks about the temple. We're not talking about presiding keys. Yeah. No one receives presiding keys in the temple. Men and women kneel across the altar on equal kneeling. I'm going yeah, yeah. <laughs> to say equal standing, but that doesn't really work. <laughs> but they're, they're equal. No keys are given to either of them. So the keys that are available there are the keys specific to the temple. And most people wouldn't really use the term key just because it would be different than how we would use it in a normal church. Right. So that's the first part. So for women, yes, of course, keys are extremely important, but they're not going to be presiding key holders at all. Even in relief society presences. No, there is right. no woman who is given priesthood keys right. for those, but it has to be an ordained office, uh -huh. priesthood ordained office. But do they have authority? Yes, they have the same authority in their responsibility as, frankly, an elders quorum president in his it's a little bit difficult when you start talking about keys because the reality is a Relief Society president also can make promises for the Lord. She also has authority. And trying to distinguish exactly what she has compared to what he has is maybe perhaps a little bit fruitless. But at the same time, you can say a woman has priesthood authority to be making promises because he she is given that priesthood authority from the key holder. Yeah. If there was no key holder, she wouldn't have the authority to give those promises. Yeah, that, so again, that, that key holder is extremely important. Yeah, that's important because there can be so much nuance in, in these discussions where you feel like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to overstep my bounds. Right. But to empower Lisa presence for a bishop to say, listen, you have authority. You walk in there with that confidence and yeah. power to make promises and, and bless those sisters. Right. Yeah, and I remember serving as a Relief Society president and as a you know stake young women's president and as a missionary and feeling strongly, just like you were saying that I could really make some serious promises to these girls and felt very compelled in some cases to, to make promises and then questioning myself and saying, but by what authority am I doing this? And having an inner battle and then just going with the spirit and saying, sisters, I promise you that if you do, you know, and just yeah, kind yeah. of go through there. But I knew when I was saying it, that the spirit was confirming to what I was saying was true. It wasn't until later that I realized that President, you know, President Oaks and President Nelson and others confirmed to me that 
those feelings that I had were actually correct feelings and that they were 100% supported by the Lord. Yeah. But had I not had those callings, it would be a little bit different. I also think when we're talking about priesthood keys, I don't know. And I, this is something I probably need to study a little bit more. They do have the authority to make promises. I'm not sure as far as those blessings, how that relates exactly. And that's something I need to be studying yeah. a little bit more as well. Yeah, that's great. And helpful and empowering just to hear that, you know. So what what would you, if you were talking to, to bishops who obviously are are key holders and acting under authority in, in those presidencies, what can they do in a ward to further enable and highlight the authority of women as they go about their week-to-week assignments and roles? I think a number of things. And we've been seeing some changes recently in the church as the, as the first presidency and quorum of the 12 are trying to wrestle with what women can and can't do. Yeah. And Bonnie Oscarson gave the great talk about the young women and what they can and can't do. I think one of the things that a bishop could be doing is saying, okay, traditionally, we have only allowed the deacons to bring the sacrament to the sisters or to those who are, sorry, not the deacons, the priests to bring the sacrament to those who are stuck in their homes forever. But what could the sisters do? Like, what could the, what could the young women do in accordance with the teachings of the gospel that would allow them to be a part of the sacred ordinance that mm-hmm. may, they may not necessarily be able to bless the sacrament, but what could they do that would empower the sisters to be a part of this very sacred experience? And I think if they just really asked themselves on a regular basis and really honed in to what the sisters were feeling, I think that they would find that they could use the women and especially the young women a lot more than they are. Mm-hmm. It could be anything from, I mean, I guess I've kind of gone through my own little list and bullet points and just said, could the sisters do this? Could the sisters do this? Could the yeah. sisters do this? And probably 90% of the time, the answer would be yes. Yeah. Most of the time when we talk about what the men can do, the sisters can do it too. Yeah. So by I think by, if nothing else, by telling the sisters, I'm working on this as a bishop to try to figure out how to empower you and how to help you and help the ward uh, be blessed by the priesthood power and authority that you have. Can you help me as a Relief Society understand how you as a sister can use your priesthood power and authority to make this ward a better place? And I'm 100% confident the Relief Society president will receive revelation and guidance to how to respond to that bishop. Yeah. But the bishop has to open it up to the Relief Society president who she can receive revelation to. Yeah. You know, sometimes we get caught up that in these smaller tasks of like, well, can can the young women carry the tray, right? Yeah. When in reality, I think most of the time they just want a seat at the table of that revelatory table, right? right? Absolutely. How do yeah. you see it? What are we missing? Yeah. Uh, that sort of thing rather than, you know, if, if they do go help with a, a shut-in that with a sacrament, uh, you know, should they be sitting somewhere? Do they, can they touch the touch the tray? You know, yeah. those types of things. We, we It's easy to get lost in those details when in reality, just having that discussion as a bishopric, as a ward council and opening up and finding ways, you'll often find that, you know, there's nothing in the handbook that says we can't do that. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and move forward. Could they be in a room when the high council is having a discussion? I mean, is there anything that says they can't? I mean, yeah. I don't mean to by no means tell a bishop or state president what they should or shouldn't right. be doing. They are the presiding key holding person. But That's I also think it, yeah. to follow to follow the prophet right now, the brethren need to I mean, these these key holders, I would recommend highly that they try to figure out what the prophet's saying in their own calling. Yeah. So on uh on chapter three, you you start the chapter off with some a variety of questions. And these are you said before going through how different parts of the priesthood apply to women at church, let's look at some realistic and pertinent questions people have asked and then answer them using the principles, doctrine, just the principles and doctrines just discussed. And you go through questions like, you know, if a husband and wife are called to teach a Sunday school class together, does the husband preside based on what the family proclamation teaches? Is it correct to thank the priesthood, referring to the brethren, for passing the sacrament after young men have participated in sacred ordinances? That's one we're, we're still struggling with. But. <laughs> Although I've noticed it's gotten tremendously better. Oh, good. I visited good. A lot of words as I travel, and I I actually don't hear it very much anymore, which is yeah. really fun. <laughs> like we're listening, it's great. And bless the heart of the bishop. He's so nervous up there. He I just know. he doesn't know what else to say. You know, bless but is it appropriate for the relief society president from one ward to give instruction to the relief society president of another ward regarding her calling? Was the oath and covenant of the priesthood meant for only for men? So, and obviously you've touched on some of these, but just some of these questions. Uh, one that you touch on a lot is as far as presiding, like if the if the young men's, well, there's no young men's president. So let's go with elders quorum president. If the elders quorum president or least side president are making decisions about ministering, does the elders quorum's decisions outrank because he holds the priesthood, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. So where does that all fit in in this discussion? Again, it comes down to priesthood keys. So I've actually heard 
of many occasions, even very close to home where an elder scorn president would would make assignments for the Relief Society president because he wants to put them together in couples and he feels so inspired to do so, so that they can help the ministering happen better. Well, that's great, but it's not appropriate for him to put a sister anywhere. He doesn't preside over any sisters in the ward. Unless the bishop actually says, I want you to do this because he is the key holder. So in order to make that an appropriate assignment, he would need to go to Relief Society's president and say, I'm just thinking about this. What are you thinking about? If she disagrees, then they're at a crossroads and they need to figure it out. Yeah. But he doesn't usurp authority over her in any way, shape or form because that's not his stewardship. Right. And you gave a great example in the book. I forget what uh, calling you were serving in, but I think it was a stake calling. And he sort of said, why don't you preside in this meeting? Do you remember? As a stake, I was a stake young woman's president. He was okay. a stake young men's president. Okay. Yeah. And so you were meeting just about youth and... Uh, meeting about the trek. Okay, Trek. Oh, well, <laughs> I can remember this. Lots because... of meetings about yes. Trek, I'm sure. Yes. And so a uh, state presidency member wasn't there. No. Nope. Right? So it was you two. And a lot of times we think, okay, well, we know that neither of us are presiding over each other. So therefore, right. nobody's presiding. But that's maybe not a why. Someone has to preside, right? Or Yeah. And, and, and I have worked for the church and been in meetings for many years. And I've had many callings in the church. It is very natural and very traditional for a woman at any moment, if there's a man in the room, the man just takes control. The yeah. man is always going to be presiding. Mm. And that's been my experience for many, many years. And as I started thinking about this more, I realized it doesn't really make sense that a man's in charge because he's a man. Yeah. My parents weren't that way. My dad right, and right. mom were very equal. Uh, my dad presided, but he wasn't in charge. And and I just didn't, it didn't, it never resonated right with me. And I kind of watch it and observe it. And yeah. So President Nelson and President Oaks and President Ballard once again made it very clear that it's not a presiding issue. There are no keys in that case. Mm-hmm. And so if you if there is not a key holder and you're talking about the hierarchical structure of the church, there is no presiding official. Yeah. So they work together. I mean, it would be a sometimes we look at it kind of the negative side. There should be no presiding. But in the positive side is you have two people called from the stake president who have been called and set apart to work with the young the young women and the young men. And together, they can make an extremely great experience. It doesn't matter who's presiding. The two of them together are working together in synergy to create a wonderful project. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the even in you know the secular world, you may be in a team meeting and you'll say, hey, you know, Susan, why don't you take point on this on this project? And, you know, you make the final decision, yeah. whatever. Like even I love that gesture that this brother made that saying, you know, Barbara, why don't you... Uh, why don't you preside over this meeting and maybe I'll take another meeting and that's helpful. Yeah. And frankly, for me, it was a great teaching moment because I was a new stake young women's president. He had just returned home as being a mission president. He'd already been a stake president. I, I <laughs> knew him and, and I knew his reputation yeah. and he it was, was easy just to respected. default to him. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if there was somebody who was going to default to, he would be a very easy one to just say, no, yeah. no, I'm, I'm good. But he, he wouldn't have it. He, he knew better and yeah. And he understood and, and the think, doctrine and it was great. Yeah. That's just a great example of what a bishop or some of these male leaders can do is yes. in those scenarios, call it out and say, you know what, I, I'm not presiding here. So why don't we look to you to, to make the final call when, when there's a tiebreaker or someone needs to make a call. And right? you know, if you, if you go that direction, I'll throw in a few more things on that topic. I, I have been taught by many home teachers and the majority get it, but some don't, but I'm always grateful for the home teacher or now we would say minister, but mm-hmm. in the past home teacher who would say, as I was single, Barb, it's, it's your home, you preside, who would you like to say the prayer? As a woman, that's very empowering. Mm-hmm. And then you can say, you know what, I actually feel that I would like to have so-and-so versus a person who just says, hey, we're priesthood holders in the house. And so men are always in charge. And so I'm going to say the prayer. No, I really don't want you to say the prayer. And I actually preside, you know, and not mm-hmm. in a mean way, but just it's really not appropriate. But another thing that that men, especially leaders could do is I have seen it even in my own home recently, where a person who is a, a man will will call on someone to pray when my husband is not there or will have an activity at our house and there are a lot of men there, a lot of members of the church there, and uh, a man will kind of step in and say, you know, I will ask so-and-so to pray. And I appreciate when another man will say, you know, you know it's not your home, right? <laughs> like, I appreciate it when people in leadership positions will correct each other yeah. so that people who perhaps are not and really would rather not have to correct them in public don't have to. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think that a lot of it is, is women helping women, men helping men, women helping men, and everyone recognizing no one's trying to be offensive. We're just trying to do it right. Yeah. Giving people the benefit of the doubt, you yeah. know? Yeah, I think that's so helpful. So, let, let's talk about another dynamic that relates to this that I hear a lot about that oftentimes, let's say a a primary president needs a new counselor. Yeah, prays about a name, goes to the temple, feels so strongly about a name, takes it to the uh, bishopric, mm-hmm. and no, you know, it gets turned down. And maybe yeah. it's three or four 
names. And then finally, she gets to the point saying, you know what? Why don't you just tell me who you'd like me to call? Right? It could be a very frustrating yeah. part of our, our dynamic. And and I always tried as a bishop to really empower them. Sometimes they would uh, or or believe in that process. And when sure. they come, sometimes they bring a name and I'm thinking in my head like, that'll never work, but here we go, right? So what what do we need to understand from the authority and the keys and all that process? Uh, how can we better understand that process and how how can we improve it so that people aren't frustrated by the revelatory process? Yeah, I gave an analogy in the book and that actually came from a woman asking me that question and I was needing to answer the question the next day. So I was just kind of asking Heavenly Father as I was on a walk, you know, how do I answer this question? And I've learned a lot about revelation, but he, in this case, he just kind of visually showed, I visually learned, I have to be careful because I don't want to put too much on him. It sounds kind of weird sometimes, but <laughs> but I was walking up by our elementary school, by our house, and I I saw three little kids. It looks like two brothers, probably, and a younger sister. And uh, there was a crosswalk, and then there was a car coming, and I saw the two boys, they were older, riding their bikes, and they crossed the crosswalk. The car waited for them, and then this little girl came, and she was trying to cross the crosswalk as well. And while she was crossing the crosswalk, she fell down. And I could tell that she was hurt. I was far too far away. And frankly, I'm not a very fast runner nor an athlete. So I just kind of felt badly for her, but just more or less watched as I was continuing to walk closer. And I saw her fall down and she started to cry. And she was, you know, finally she sat down on her bottom and looked at her knees and she was a little bit bloody. At least it seemed like it was from yeah. far away. And the car just kind of waited patiently and didn't say anything, didn't roll down the window and ask her if she was good. She just watched. And then in the same process, I mean, this is, I'm making it sound like it's longer, but it was very quick. Another car pulled up right behind the first car. And had no idea what was going on in front and just started honking the horn and rolled down the window and yelled at the car in front. And you could tell the car behind thought that the guy in front or the person in front was just on their cell phone or just not paying attention, which would be a normal thing to think if yeah. you're just hanging out it, at the crosswalk, yeah. right? I mean, I'm guilty of that myself on more yeah. occasions than I'd like to admit. So I watched it. And as I was watching this experience, I had just a thought that just came and just said, you know, it, it really, I don't have the exact wording, but... It all depends on this, on your perspective or the seat that you have. Hmm. And so I, when I went back and I was speaking at education week, it, the lesson that I learned is in this case, the analogy, the person that's sitting in the car is the key holder. And a lot of times the key holder sees somebody that has fallen in front of him or a situation that no one knows about, but him. And when we sustain a key holder, we put the trust in the Lord that he is using that person to receive revelation and be the one that's really in charge and has the stewardship to direct what is happening in the ward. And so in this case, that person that was honking behind the key holder was absolutely clueless. And when that little girl got back on her scooter and she kind of scooted off in a little panting, crying way, I looked at the person's face. I could, by that time I was close enough and it, the person was literally sick. Like you could tell they were so embarrassed that if, if that person would have done what they were telling you to do, they would have killed the child. I mean, yeah. you could just see the person and actually the other person drove off quickly as soon as a child passed and the other person just waited. Like you could tell they just were shocked by the whole situation. So that's one side of it is we have to, we have key holders that are called of God and we sustain them as members of the church that we are going to be, we're going to, in a sense, kind of have their back and follow them. On the other side, I have been guilty as many people also have, as we just said, of actually being on the cell phone and all the kids would have passed and we're still on our cell phone and really not paying attention I mean, how many times have I stopped a red light and yeah. been there like through the red light and the green light and the red light again? <laughs> and there's a reason why people are honking. So for the priesthood leader, in that case, I would say, look, if you're if you're really on your cell phone, then you need to get off your cell phone and pay attention because the person behind you could be right. They really could be receiving revelation and they really could be guided by the Lord that that person should be called. And just because you have a different opinion than them, that's not revelation. Or just because you think that somebody else could be doing a job better somewhere else, that's also not revelation. Just to make sure that if you're going to turn down somebody who has confidently received revelation, to make sure that you're receiving revelation and not it's just not a good idea or you just have a prejudice against someone. I hope that doesn't ever happen. Right. But from the priesthood leaders, the key holders that I've spoken with, that does happen on occasion. Mm -hmm. And many of them will say, you know, I, I made a poor decision or I chose this because of this. And many most of them regret that in the long run. I think the brethren are being much more careful. The brethren meaning First Presidency Quorum of Twelve, and they're training on this more. I noticed at this at the Saturday night session, the women were actually talking about making sure you receive revelation and then going to the bishop. Again, it is the bishop that extends the calling, though. So the women, yeah. regardless, still need to understand, even though it could be extremely frustrating, 
I believe that every person in the church will always be blessed by following the key holder on being obedient to the Lord regardless. And we'll just, this sounds mean and negative, but we'll just let the key holder take care of the judgment day. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> or let the Lord take care of that. Yeah. That seems extreme, but yeah. if you let it fester and you get upset and you whatever and struggle with that key holder because of an experience like that, it could not only damage you, but it could damage a lot of other people, yeah. which is that would be a bigger concern than the key holder not listening to your revelation. Yeah. And because I knew, I know in some scenarios or situations where, you know, it gets to a point where it's like, you know, why don't, why don't the key holder, why doesn't the key holder just make all the decisions and we'll Absolutely. just roll with it. And and that's not a helpful place to be. And no, so it could not. be an opportunity for a primary president, a young women's president to approach that bishop and say, listen, I, I desperately want part of this revelatory process, but I feel like I am not in it. And so what can we do to get there? Right. Yeah. And I, I'll tell you, I remember one experience when I was, I was given a calling and I felt strongly about one person and then the next person, five people. And I was turned down for every person. And then finally, and this may be a little bit rebellious, but I said to the key holder in this case, would you like me to go back and pray? Because it doesn't seem like my prayers mean anything. And I wasn't trying to be rude by it. I was sincerely asking, is there any reason I'm praying? Because uh -huh. if you already know who you're calling, just call them, mm -hmm. right? To which the key holder in this case apologized and said, you're right. I already have somebody chosen. And I think both of us came to a very kind understanding that mm -hmm. um, he may have received revelation for that person. And if that's the case, perhaps he could just have told me. Yeah, but yeah, at the yeah. same time, he also kind of said, we've chosen someone and not through revelation, <laughs> just because we thought that was a good person. Right. So that, you know, there's a difference and I think we all just have to be sensitive to that. But yeah. if you're going to, if a key holder is going to turn someone down who they have asked to pray and they know that they have prayed and fasted over a person, which women typically take that very seriously, yeah. then I would strongly caution them to be careful if they are going to override that decision without personal revelation. Yeah, because yeah, it can turn in this passive aggressive, like, can, uh, I know who I want, but why yes. don't you go pray and I'll just say no until you pick the yeah. person right. And, and you got to stay away from that. Yeah. And yeah. women don't want to be mocked. There's already a big enough problem. And that to them is very demeaning for yeah. most women. Yeah. So definitely have to look out for that. Well, uh, we've covered a lot here and the book covers even more. So people should go uh, purchase it and check it out, get it from a library, borrow it from a friend, however they want to get it. Anything we're missing, but I have maybe one more question and I want, definitely want to plug anything else with as far as getting the book, obviously Desert Book and whatnot, but anything we're missing in general that would be worth uh, mentioning in this interview? I just, maybe maybe one thing that's been on my mind that women really at this time in the history of the earth, for whatever reason, have been prophesied about. I mean, President Nelson talks about how President Kimball talked about this time and President Oaks talked about that as well. There is something about this day and age where women are being asked to be the guardian of the family and in some cases even culture and church and what is moral. And when women understand the priesthood power that they have, that will become not only more significant but more effective and much easier for women. Uh, sometimes I think we try to do it on our own, but we really do have a, a measure of our creation has been given to us. And if women go to the Lord and ask how do I gain this power and how can I use this priesthood power for the benefit of the children of men? He will tell them. I have no question that that's the case. And also it's never a competition. There's no competition between women. There's no competition between women and men or fathers and wives or bishops and really society presidents. If we're doing it right, just like God, the father and Jesus Christ, it's a unified effort. And the more we are one in that, the more power and authority God will be able to give all of his children on the earth. So I think sometimes I hear people saying, especially men, I've heard recently a few of them say, well, well, what do we have then? Well, <laughs> you have the same as you've always had, then nothing has changed. The difference is now you hopefully understand that together with someone else, especially a woman, you can do a lot more to save the souls of men. If the reason for the priesthood is to save souls, we should all be happy that there is more available. It's always been there, but now we're just understanding it better. Awesome. Uh, last question I have is, as you've gone through this project and studied uh, the priesthood power of women... How has that made you a better disciple of Jesus Christ? I recognize that the power that I have is very sacred. I pray for power to know. I pray for the ability to know how to use the power. I pray to know what kind of promises I can make uh, in my family, but also as a teacher. I recognize, as I said before, for years I thought that only men had priesthood power, and so only male seminary teachers could make promises. And only male seminary teachers had authority because only they had the priesthood. I recognized I have the same priesthood they do in the temple. The hierarchical structure of the church, although they've been ordained to a priesthood office, isn't what gives them the power. What gives them the power is the ordinances and the covenants that they make in the temple because they're endowed. 
So I have that ability. So when I'm praying as a BYU professor for my students and I'm asking, what promises can I make? How can I guide? How can I lead these students? How can I help my husband? What prayers can I offer? How can I help my future family, my current family? I recognize that I have more power than I, than I realized in the past. And I have a greater responsibility to be at the temple more, to be in my scriptures more, to find holy places so that the Lord can guide me and direct me and give me the power that He needs for me to have to fulfill my purpose on the earth. That concludes my interview with Barbara Morgan Gardner. I sure appreciate the research that she's gone into, the book that she's written, and all the principles we discussed. I mean, just just the simple concept of understanding priesthood keys on a deeper level. Isn't that helpful? Right? I love that as far as categorizing them in three different areas, I think that is so helpful to further understand uh, what it is we've been given. And especially those that hold the keys, what is it, you know, what does your authority really mean and how can you implement it? I hope you feel inspired listening to this uh, to this uh, interview. And if you have further questions, insights, thoughts, you know, that we have a great Facebook group called Leading Saints Helpers that was originally created to encourage individuals to help out with Leading Saints, and that still happens. Uh, We'll put out information and requests and things of ways that you could help Leading Saints, but you can go to Facebook right now, search for Leading Saints Helpers, be part of the group, and if you have a question, a concept, or a perspective that you'd like to share, uh, go and type it in there and share it with the group. There's about 1,200 people in there now, and uh, there's some interesting discussion that happens from time to time. It'd be fun to have you a part of it. And don't forget the two important events coming up, the Leading Saints Live November 16th event happening in Sandy, Utah. Go to leadingsaints.org and you'll see a place to click on to see uh, how to register. And then also the 2020 Leading Saints Church History Tour. you see all the details by going to leadingsaints.org slash tour. Be fun to have you there. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And When the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.